You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of Ohio vs. the World. Today we're talking about Ohio versus booze. Basically, how the Buckeye State caused the entire country to go dry in 1920. We're going to be live in Westerville with Beth Weinhart of the Anti-Saloon League Museum. Beth is going to walk us through how this happened, how a freedom-loving people would give away a private right. In 1920, they banned the fifth largest industry in the country alcohol and the bottling and everything involved shipping involved with alcohol the constitutional amendments up until 1920 only banned two things they were all the amendments were basically restrictions as to what the federal government could do except now you couldn't own a slave and you could not buy alcohol in the united states our beer for this episode uh, we're going back to westerville to temperance row brewing it's actually in uptown westerville downtown westerville the old dry capital of the world now has a a brewery. They've got an amazing uh, IPA there called Corbin's Revenge IPA. It's a 6% um, alcohol by volume. And we'll talk about Henry Corbin, the Westerville native who the beer is named after. It's got kind of a floral finish, uh, a little vanilla. It's not super heavy, super hoppy like a hop slam or anything. Really a lighter IPA. It's very refreshing. Um, go check them out. Like I said, they're on State Street. Um, they couple with the Uptown Deli. Um, they've got great food up there, and that's the entire restaurant and the entire bar is prohibition themed and temperance themed. It's called Temperance Row Brewing, but really good beer um, and a lot of cool stuff in there uh, to, to look at, and a lot of good beer. So go check out Temperance Row Brewing. Um, and again, their website is uptowndeliandbrew.com. But I got to be honest, I'm partial to prohibition. I didn't live through it, which is, makes it a lot easier for me. I'm not a teetotaler. I am actually a liquor attorney, and I wouldn't have the job that I have now. I wouldn't be able to do what I do now if I weren't for prohibition. So after repeal in 1933, the 21st Amendment, all these new laws had to be written and come into effect, and they're complicated, and every state's different. And so what I do is I help people buy, sell a bar, restaurant, brewery, winery, um, I help them open. I help them navigate all these complicated liquor laws here in the in the Buckeye State to be able to do whatever they want with a liquor permit, to be able to get them a liquor permit. Um, and if it weren't for prohibition and the rewriting of all these laws, because before prohibition, there really weren't any laws. Um, there were some, there were some local options, some, some stuff, but it was a much different system. If you wanted to serve at 5 a.m. in the morning to an 18, uh, you know, a 16-year-old, uh, knock yourself out. Just a quick programming note. Last week, we were the guest on a great podcast called Whiskey Business, uh, hosted by Dino Tripodis, local comedy legend, uh, host of the morning show on Sunny 95 here in Columbus. He had us on to talk about prohibition and why it was Ohio's fault. So find that episode. We had a great time. Uh, WhiskeyBusinessShow.com or find it on iTunes or Stitcher. What we want to focus on today is how did this happen? Why is it Ohio's fault? How did it happen here in the Buckeye State 
that led to everybody giving up the right to legally drink alcohol. We're going to focus on the actual process of how this country went dry in January of 1920. We're going to sit down with Beth to talk about the Anti-Saloon League's role, the role of Wayne B. Wheeler, their leader, and one of the strongest and most powerful people in politics the Buckeye State has ever produced. Um, It's a famous saying that he used to make the most powerful men in the country sit up and beg. And we'll look at how Mr. Wheeler did that and how the ASL became the premier organization, the premier lobbying and pressurized political organization in the country for a number of decades. We'll focus on a later episode about prohibition in Ohio and actually all the way through repeal and look at some of the major figures in Ohio during prohibition. But today we're going to focus on the Saloon League. We're going to focus on Wheeler and how the hell did this country go dry. So sit back. We're going to take a trip back to the early 20th century and find out how Ohio killed booze. how prohibition could become possible and give rise to William Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League, you really have to go back to the 19th century and understand how Americans drank and how big a problem it had become. In 1830, the average American drank 17 and a half gallons of liquor a year. That's 90 fifths of liquor. That's basically two bottles a week of liquor for every person over the age of 15. And that includes people who didn't drink. Um, that's just how bad the problem had gotten. People didn't really drink beer back then. Um, I'm talking about liquor, about whiskey and rum, brandy. Um, and that includes that number, that 90 fifths a year, that 100 or 7.5 gallons of liquor a year. That includes everyone who didn't drink. So say that only 50% of people drank back then. That really means that each person over the age of 15 was drinking 15 gallons of liquor. Um, our numbers now aren't anywhere near there. There wasn't really uh, beer, like I said. Water wasn't was not nearly as potable in the cities, in the east, in the factories, on the waterways. Um, they didn't have clean water, you know, filtration systems and things like that we have today. You could get all kinds of waterborne diseases. People drank liquor. They drank whiskey. The English loved, you know, their gin. Um, it wasn't until after the Civil War that this country became a country of beer, um, as German immigrants and Irish immigrants pour into the country in the 1860s and 70s, that's how beer really enters our life um, as Americans. It was drank before, ale was drank, ciders were drank, but it was the Germans and the Irish who really bring beer to the forefront, and it becomes America's number one uh, libation. The problems were simply this, that women were not in the saloons. Women were not allowed to be out drinking. That was a male thing. That was what their husbands did. And they would come home after spending all the family's money and raise their hand to their wives and their children. And women felt powerless. They couldn't vote. They couldn't have jobs, really. And they couldn't do, they couldn't, certainly couldn't get a divorce. Alcohol was the evil. And it's women, and it's most notably Ohio women, who decide they've had enough. What have they had enough of? They've had enough of the saloon. Okay, they've had enough of alcohol, but most importantly, they've had enough of the saloon and what it does to the town and to the men in that town. 
saloons in the 1860s and 1870s, they were run by the breweries. You could get, you know, there's a saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, in a 19th century brewery, there was a free lunch. Um, they gave you free everything. It's where, it's where they would spend all of their money after work. It's where politics were discussed, and people drank to excess. Uh, the brewery owned the saloon. They owned everybody in the saloon would try to sell just that one type of beer or those one or two types of whiskey. Um, you know, the saloon, they give you the signage that would come from the brewer. Uh, the brewer would buy saltines and sausage and sardines were a big thing there. Salty stuff. Uh, Daniel Oakrit in his book, Last Call, says that sardines were known back then as the silent partners of the saloon. The salty things obviously would make you drink. I mean, we still see peanuts and pretzels at the bar today to try and make you get thirsty so that you have to have another drink while you're there. But things were, it's basically the modern saloon on steroids, okay? And that's where people spent their time and their money. And they drank, quite honestly, they drank more than we did back then. So how does it start? What's the spark? that gets the prohibition movement going in the state of Ohio as it spreads across the country like wildfire after that. As far as I'm concerned, the spark really happens on Christmas Eve, 1873, in the town of Hillsboro, Ohio, in southwest Ohio, kind of between Columbus and Cincinnati. There's a woman named Eliza Thompson. She's the daughter of a governor, and she decides, after leaving church on Christmas Mass, they get the plan, her and dozens of other women, they decide to go to the saloon owners in Hillsboro and pray in the snow outside of their, their saloons. I mean, it's a total buzzkill for anyone who's in there. Um, but women marching in the street being politically active, this is one of the first times you're going to see that, 1873, in Hillsboro, Ohio. And within less than two weeks, 11 days, Miss Thompson and her crusade had closed nine of the 13 drinking places in Hillsboro, Ohio. And the crusade is born. It brought on the idea that prohibition is possible, a total ban. And they leave Hillsboro and they go to a town even closer to Columbus called Washington Courthouse. And they try their, their praying outside of the saloon there. And again, saloon owners either shut down or close temporarily. And they keep moving and they keep moving. And it becomes a national story. Mother Thompson and her, and her faithful band of of women who are changing the country a politically motivated movement by women it was uh it was groundbreaking and it leads to the organization of a of a political organization known as the women's christian temperance union you'll hear me call it the wctu and the wctu again it's just like it sounds like except for they were totally against alcohol they wanted to completely ban alcohol and the WCTU gains power in the 1880s and the 1890s, but eventually they do lose steam. They're not politically viable. Women don't vote. And eventually they become so out of touch, they, they want to ban this and ban that. And it's not just temperance and alcohol moderation to them. There's other issues. They die out. They might not die out, but they certainly become a lesser organization, and they're not going to be able to bring the country abolition of, of alcohol. They're not even considering a constitutional amendment. 
1893, a new organization is born, the Anti-Saloon League, the ASL. It begins in Oberlin, Ohio in 1893, and their singular goal from their, from their creator, Howard Hyde Russell, is to ban the saloon and to ban alcohol from the entire country. We sit down with Beth Weinhart to talk about the beginnings of the ASL and its movement to Westerville, Ohio. And uh, he came home one night, and she was waiting up for him and wanted to talk about uh, the fact that he imbibed sometimes, and she did not feel he was religious enough. And he had a phrase he used when he didn't want to talk about something, and he used it at this point, and he says, Das is verboten, and stormed out of the house, went to his law practice, slept, worked the next day, came home. Um, I can only imagine the sinking feeling he felt when he pulled his buggy up in front of the house and the bedroom light was still on. He knew Lillian, his wife, would be waiting for him. Well, uh, to make a long story short, he went up. Uh, She was very persuasive. He had a conversion experience. He had 12 bottles of whiskey in the house that he poured out. He gave up his law practice went to Oberlin to study for the ministry, and subsequently founded the Anti-Saloon League. Wow. So the, the Anti-Saloon League starts out of a husband and wife's argument over, over someone's drinking. I think you could say that. Yeah. Um, so the Saloon League is, there's prohibition movements going on in the country. It starts throughout the 19th century, um, kind of peaking. You, you see a lot in the 1870s with the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, um, you know, there's sit-ins at all kinds of central Ohio taverns. You see it starts out of Hillsborough, Ohio, and moves to Washington Courthouse, other areas. But the WCTU kind of begins to wane in importance, and the Anti-Saloon League takes on really the central, you know, figure in the fight against, um, against alcohol here in the country. What was different from the Saloon League compared to the WCTU, and how were they able to be more successful and ultimately, uh, you know, have alcohol banned in the States? Well, you know, it's really kind of interesting. Ohio really was the heart of it all when it comes to anti-alcohol organizations. We had the Prohibition Party, which had its first national convention in the 1860s in Columbus, uh, and which actually um, since um, I think the 1870s has been running someone for president of the United States every four years. They don't always get on the ballot, but they are nominating somebody. So we have the Prohibition Party, third party. Then we have the WCTU, which comes along in the 1870s, uh, primarily female. And, of course, at that point, females do not have the vote. But both the Prohibition Party and the WCTU were very ambitious beyond just eliminating saloons. Within a year of its formation, the WCTU is calling for, uh, of course, women's suffrage, but they're calling for a fair wage, a 40-hour work week. They want uh, pure food and water legislation, uh, child labor regulations. They call for civil service reform, uh, different American Indian policy. It goes on and on. So the Prohibition Party and the WCTU, I think you could say, were sidetracked by a lot of issues beyond alcohol. 
Now, when Howard Hyde Russell founds the Anti-Saloon League, he is determined that it will be a single-issue organization. They are concentrating on getting rid of the saloon. They're not paying attention to other causes. And the reason for this is that Howard Hyde realized that these other things got in the way of getting rid of the saloon. The other thing you need to realize about the league is they felt that if they got rid of the saloon, they would cure disease, poverty, family dysfunction. They would make for a more perfect union in our government. So to them, getting rid of the saloon really cured a lot of the other societal ills that the Prohibition Party and the WCTU had been talking about. their founder says he is quote-unquote dedicated to political retribution to their enemies. What's that mean? That means that they don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. They care how you vote on prohibition. And if you vote against them, if you vote in favor of alcohol or the breweries or the distillers, they'll vote you out. So their coalition, just to show you how little they cared, it's called the Ohio Rule. This idea because it grows out of the Saloon League's Ohio office, Ohio chapter, that we don't care about other things, workers' rights, suffragettes, anything to do that any other laws that are not based on prohibition. So their coalition looks like this. On the right, they've got the KKK, all right, who is who believes that alcohol is evil, believes that African Americans with access to alcohol are going to be a problem and have been and will continue to be. It's also a way for them to battle the influence of the big city immigrants, okay? The big cities with a- Italians. Central Americans, as more and more influx comes in from Europe and other places around the globe. Um, it's just this anti, anti-nativist view, okay? Or anti, I'm sorry, a nativist view, a know-nothing party view. They also, in the middle, then you have your progressives. The people who want to improve the lives of the dirty, huddled masses. And they want to use government to improve conditions. And on the far left, you've got the workers' party who want to make... Um, who want to make it just that one that one issue. They believe that that alcohol is keeping down the masses. The poor people are kept down by alcohol and alcohol abuse. So you've got a really wide net there. You've got the KKK all the way over to the you know the almost to the socialist party. Um, and that's how they're able to get ever just enough people to vote. Do they have a majority? No. But let's say there's a 45-45 split. There's 10% of voters there in the middle. They can turn those 10 voters through their money, through their propaganda, through lobbying. They can turn that 10% of the electorate against you and for your wet, your dry opponent and turn the election and vote you out of office. The ASL and Howard Hyde Russell, they hire a young attorney, a young law student named Wayne B. Wheeler, Wayne Bidwell Wheeler. 
and he's studying at Western Reserve Law School, which is now Case Western Reserve Law School, on the city's east side, um, in basically what is now Little Italy. And Wheeler is amazing. He's a locomotive in trousers, as they call him. He bikes from town to town, from church to church, signing people up for the league, signing people up for his message of abolition of drinking. It's not at this time. They're not ready for a a constitutional amendment. They just want to ban drinking in every county, precinct, town that they can. And Wheeler is by far the best agent that they have in the Anti-Saloon League. And he gets his chance, and he rises through the ranks and begins to run the Ohio office. And in 1905, he takes on the powerful governor, Myron T. Herrick. We talk to to Beth Weinhardt about that 1905 gubernatorial election in Ohio and how it puts the ASL and Wayne Wheeler on the map. So Wayne Wheeler starts to take over. He gets to start in Oberlin under Hyde Russell as a student. Um, he's going town to town. He's on his bicycle, and, and he is preaching the good word of the ASL. But we get to this point here in Ohio where Wheeler is working you know, to get candidates elected that are Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter to him. Where do they stand on the issue of, of prohibition? Um, we go to the 1905 governor's election. I think this is where the ASL really, people nationally and certainly here in the Buckeye State, start to notice their power. In, in 05, um, they decide that they have an enemy in the state house in Governor Myron T. Herrick. And Herrick is, um, he's coming off a landslide win in 1903. He's a well-backed, certainly well-supported in the business community, a somewhat popular governor, but he votes down um, a local option, basically, which means a uh, a local option bill called the Brannick Bill. Talk about uh, that election and and the ASL, their role in it, and and kind of what was so unique about the 1905 Ohio governor's race. Well, I think the 1905 1905 governor's race uh, really made the brewers and the distillers set up, take notice in horror. Because you have a very popular Republican governor, Governor Herrick, who is elected in a landslide and probably feels like he has a lot of clout and can ignore the temperance forces in the, in the state. So he vetoes a measure that would expand a local option. And this brought the wrath of the anti-saloon league on his head. Um, Howard Hyde Russell once said that political retribution was a very important part of their arsenal. And this is a case where they used it. So they began to campaign against Herrick. They named saloons that were opened uh, under this new law, they began to call them Herrick saloons and talk about all the evil things that went on in them. So they try to find a candidate to run against him in the primary, and they go after Harding, another Republican, and he hesitates about doing that and and turns them down. So they find uh, Patterson, who is a Democrat, uh, John M. Pattison. He's actually been on the league's board, uh, so he had league connections, so they trust him, and uh, he goes on the ballot to run against Herrick. Now, in that year, 
the churches were used to get out the vote. And from 1899 on, um, the Anti-Saloon League had used their support from the churches to create their own database of names that they could reach out to on their own without having to go through the churches to get out the vote. And, and as we know, even today, getting out the vote is the most important thing in a race. So, in um, result, the, the uh, Democrat, Pattison, won by over a 40,000 vote margin, while every other Democrat candidate for state office lost. That's right. It was a clear message that the league had clout, and a lot of it. And you better believe that politicians sat up and took notice. and Wheeler continue to grow in power. And in 1908-1909, they start looking for a new headquarters, a place to put their giant printing press, to print out their propaganda and their pamphlets. That's They're making millions of tons of this every single month and sending it across the country. They look for a place, and they find a town just northeast of Columbus called Westerville that has an incredible resume as a dry county, the city leaders put together an attractive package, and we talked with Beth Weinhardt about the history of Westerville, the dry capital of the world, as it became known, and how they attracted the headquarters of the Anti-Saloon League. We're in Westerville. We're in uptown, downtown Westerville. Why, why Westerville? Why, was, why did the Anti-Saloon League come here? You know, they said they, come, they were enticed in, in 1909. Um, what was it about Westerville that, that the ASL found so appealing? Well, Westerville has been dry for a long time at that point. Uh, Westerville was founded in 1858, and one of the first things they did was pass an ordinance that made the community dry. We had some challenges to that through the years. Um, one happened in the 1870s when a local businessman named Henry Corbin opened a saloon and um, encountered the wrath of the community. There were demonstrations across the street from his saloon, and things escalated. There were um, some vandal um, activities at the saloon. Somebody threw rotten eggs inside the saloon, and if you've ever smelled rotten eggs, you know <laughs> how difficult that would be to clean up. Uh, then things escalated in the summer of 1875, and there were a series of dynamite explosions at that location until the roof of that building was really partially on the ground, and Henry Corbin was only operating out of one back storeroom. And you said this is in the 1870s? Yes. The, the first explosions happened in 1875. Um, so lest you think this was an isolated event, um, Henry Corbin, being a very persistent businessman, tried again in 1879, this time on a, a site uh, right on State Street in a hotel, opened a saloon there. This time there was a large explosion, blew the glass out of many of the businesses on State Street. They said you could hear 
the sound of the explosion a couple of miles outside of town, and it completely demolished that building. Uh, we're very fortunate that no one was seriously hurt in any of these incidences, but they were nicknamed the Westerville Whiskey Wars. And these fights against Henry Corbin and his saloon made national news. So the ASL chooses Westerville for its, its printing department, which is, you know, Westerville is about 12 miles northeast of Columbus. It has this reputation, whether it's from the Whiskey Wars or just being a dry city in general. Because during the 19-teens, they were shipping 40 tons of anti-alcohol information from this site every month. 40 tons of material. That's amazing. It made Westerville the smallest village in the United States to have a first-class post office. When did, when did actually Westerville, it's not technically dry now. I used to live here in Uptown. Um, when, when did that get repealed? Talk about a little bit, you know, the situation after repeal of national prohibition in 1933, what happened in Westerville to get back to its, you know, its dry roots, and then kind of what's happened here in the, in the sort of the business boom in Uptown Westerville in the 21st century. Sure. Well, you know, I think it would be interesting if the anti-saloon leaguers could come back today. Uh, uh, they're probably rolling over in their graves right now. But their legacy did live on for a long time when you really think about it. Um, because once the 21st Amendment was ratified, which repealed prohibition, all of the local option that had been the rule in Ohio before that was kind of um, thrown out the window. And people had to vote themselves dry again. So for a period of time in Uptown uh, in um, 1933, there was a pool hall where they were selling 3-2 beer. Now, this made newspapers all over uh, the Columbus area. Uh, the founder of the Anti-Saloon League, Dr. Howard Hyde Russell, went to the owner of the pool hall and asked him to please stop doing this. Uh, they had something they called the Westerville Enforcement Committee. But um, this, this created such a stir that a, a, a fraternal order in German Village, rented a bus and brought over 30 people here to the pool hall in Westerville so that their members could drink in that dry town. Wow. And a newspaper was reporter was waiting for them when they came out so and asked them... Tourism drinking here in Westerville. Tourism drinking in <laughs> Westerville. Go figure. So uh, the, I think it was 31 men and two women came out from the pool hall, and the reporter was waiting for them, and he said... Uh, asked them what they thought about the experience, and they swore it was the best beer they'd ever had, kind of that forbidden fruit thing. So um, in 34, we voted ourselves dry again, and that lasted uh, through most of the rest of the 20th century. Russell hires a, a young lawyer from Oberlin. Um, 
well, from Cleveland down to Oberlin and Wayne Wheeler, and they really start moving to not just a state-by-state approach, but, you know, instead of having someone train here in Ohio and then become the ASL representative in Wyoming, they, they continue to do those, but they really move into Washington and in Columbus and the State House. Um, so 1913's a big year. There's the Webb Kenyon Act is passed, but two even bigger things happen. Um, they both involve constitutional amendments. So talk about the importance, um, first, of the 16th Amendment being passed. The 16th Amendment is a, allows Congress to institute an income tax on businesses and citizens in the United States. This was not something we're, we're all used to it now, paying on April 15th. But besides times of you know, Civil War and other times like that, there was no mandated federal income tax. Um, and talk about kind of how the 16th Amendment paved the way a little bit for, for the detractors of national prohibition um, to lose that fight. Well, I think the Anti-Saloon League was very astute. They realized that the excise tax on alcohol was funding a lot of the government programs. The excise tax was increased by Abraham Lincoln uh, to help fund the Union Army. The excise tax helped pay for the Spanish-American conflict. So initially, the brewers kind of and the distillers fought the idea of being taxed, but after a while, they realized it was security for them. That as long as the government relied on the money that was collected from the sale of their product, no one was going to get rid of them because you had to replace that money. It's the fifth largest industry in, in, in the country at that time. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So uh, the 16th Amendment took care of that. Once the 16th Amendment was passed, you had other sources of revenue then you could make the case, well, we don't need that excise tax from the liquor distillers and brewers. We have money (coughs) from the income of people who are wealthier. Uh, We don't need to rely on the, the distillers and brewers. And it's kind of interesting because this is coming right before we enter World War I, which is going to be a time when we're going to need revenue. So uh, we are still taxing uh, the brewers and distillers at that point, but we are, you know, the Anti-Saloon League was looking ahead uh, to what they would need to do in order to pass a constitutional amendment, because at this point, they had not really jumped on that bandwagon. Right. And in 1913, they, Wheeler and others announced that that is the new goal, that the, this is going to be a constitutional amendment. That's the approach we're going to take instead of this state-by-state basis, and there were dry states at that point, or states that were moving dry at least, dry cities, dry counties, dry precincts. So talk about just that, how that changes the game for them, and really puts the focus on Washington and on congressional races um, to move it to a national prohibition amendment movement. Well, one thing I I think um, that needs to be understood is that when the League was founded by Howard Hyde Russell, he... Uh, was a strong proponent of local option and allowing people to vote on liquor issues. And there were reasons for that. The state legislatures, the Congress, um, had a lot of input in the form of political money from the liquor interests. So are they going to vote dry 
probably not. But if Howard Hyde Russell can persuade voters in a precinct, in a county, to vote dry, then he will, uh, he will gain um, control over the, the issue of the time. So what happens in 1913 is the league looks around and they realize that they have taken local option as far as they can. They have dried up large swaths of every state, but these are mainly rural areas. If you look at a wet and dry map of Ohio in 1913, you're not going to see a Cleveland that is dry. You're not going to see a German village that is dry. You're not going to see a Cincinnati that is dry. All those communities have large immigrant populations, and they are still wet because those folks are not going to vote themselves dry. So the, the league realizes they've taken this about as far as they can. The other thing that's going on at this point is they're looking at the 1910 census. And in the 1910 census, the country was uh, 46% urban. So uh, they... You're, you're, you're talking about this kind of urban versus rural you know, divide that we really start to see at the, at the turn of the century. Yes. Um, and, and it's not unlike some things that are going on today uh, in terms of urban-rural splits as well as... Um, Issues with the feeling toward immigrants. And there is a nativist quality to your temperance movements. In 1910, the Saloon League, there's a census, a national census, as there is every 10 years. I used to work for the census in, in 2000. Um, they take a census and they can see that they're running out of time, that the movement in America, as it has been for decades, is moving towards the cities, away from the farms, away from the rural uh, communities into the cities. Talk about uh, just that concept and what the ASL decided that this, the time is now. Well, I, I want to I want to read something that Pearlie Baker said in May of 1913. So this is the point at which they are strongly considering throwing their weight behind passage of a constitutional amendment. And they had looked at that census of 1910 and realized that by 1920, it, it was so close, uh, it was just slightly more rural than urban. They realized by 1920, this is going to shift because you have this immigrant population who, oh, by the way, um, have alcohol as part of their culture, moving into the urban areas. So in 1913, uh, Pearlie Baker, who at that point superintendent of the league, says the vices of the cities have been the undoing of past empires and civilizations. It has been at the point where the urban population outnumbers the rural people that wrecked republics have gone down. <laughs> so he noticed it also. He is the one who is saying, this is when we have to do this. Um, so they have a march on Washington, December of 1913. 
Uh, in conjunction with the uh, Prohibition Party and the WCTU, they sing Onward Christian Soldiers on the steps of the Capitol. They get in the galleries and they unfurl uh, petitions with tens of thousands of signatures calling for a constitutional amendment. And we talk about the 18th Amendment. It is at this point that the steps begin to be taken uh, that are going to lead to its passage. Uh, the steps start with the nonpartisan approach that Howard Hyde Russell took right from the beginning, uh, supporting candidates based on their vote on the wet-dry question. He did not like prohibition party candidates because he didn't believe third parties could do well. So he was working within the two-party system and really didn't care whether a candidate drank alcohol. All they cared about was how they were going to vote on legislation. So they had managed already by 1913 really to be in control of the lot of the state houses and the Congress. And you see Wayne Wheeler's imprint on all of this. Well, Wheeler had a saying, Kaiserism abroad and booze at home must go. It was really brilliant to link um, the forces of the German Empire with the brewers in America. And, and that was an easy case to make. Y you look at your brewers, you have your Schlitz, your Miller, your Budweiser. Gustav Pabst. And yeah, it goes on and on. And Daniel Okrent, who has written a, a wonderful book called uh, Last Call about all of this, uses a phrase that I think is so telling. He says that if you look at a list of names of people in the American Brewers Association, it reads like a page out of the Munich, Germany phone book. <laughs> And I think that's so true. So it is very easy to link, especially the brewers, uh, who are primarily German, to the enemy. And the other case that's made during World War I is we need to preserve our grain to feed our troops in the field. We should not be using these resources to make alcohol, which really uh, is a bad influence on our troops in the field. We, we don't want them to be drinking. We want them to be fighting and to be leading a clean life. Uh, so it was an easy link to make to the brewers and an easy case to make in a time when people want to be patriotic and want to support their country. country accelerates towards prohibition and in december 1917 the 18th amendment is passed the 18th amendment prohibiting the manufacture sale or transportation of intoxicating liquors for for beverage purposes and it's sent to the states for ratification they need to get three three-fourths of the states 36 of the 48 states and in just two years wheeler and the anti-saloon league pushed that 36 state across the line and the 18th amendment is adopted they get to drafting the Volstead Act, the actual law that will go into place. And nine months later, over President Wilson's multiple vetoes, 
It's drafted. It's pushed by, by Wayne Wheeler himself. He's put enough people in Congress to pass it over a presidential veto, and the Volstead Act becomes law in late 1919. The only item wet senators were in Congress were able to get through is that one-year grace period uh, when the 18th Amendment was enacted for the country to go from wet to dry. So from January 1919 to January 1920, people start stocking up on booze. It's said that FDR had one of the largest collections in Manhattan. Mary Pickford's mom, uh, who was also her business manager, her agent, she buys an entire liquor store in Beverly Hills and puts it in her basement be- right before the law goes into effect. And in January 1920, the country goes completely dry. The, admin- the Anti-Saloon League has accomplished their goal. They have to transition from now that it's gone from, from a dream to passage. Prohibition is the law of the land. But now what for Wayne Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League? We asked Beth Weinhart, we asked her, what happened to the AASL's coalition? Why does it fall apart after passage? And we also begin to see the beginning of the end for Wayne Wheeler. So the country, the 18th Amendment's passed. And in 1920, after a year um, after it's passed, the, the country is dry. It's voted dry under the Volstead Act. And the problem now is the NI Saloon League, there are no saloons. They've achieved their goal, and, and they have to transition. And this transition proved difficult. One, because we have a nation of scoff laws, um, people who don't respect the law, people who are working to count against it or work against it. Um, people are still drinking. But the other problem is just how do we, how does the Anti-Saloon League help to maintain um, the prohibition laws and, and, and the enforcement? So this idea, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Wheeler's involved in a little bit of a controversy um, and you get some bad press. It, you know, people start drinking anything they can get their hands on. Wood alcohol, you know, the stuff you'd put on, on your deck after, you know, after, I mean, anything they can get. So people are, people are dying. People are going blind. People are, you know, there's paralysis, all, all kinds of side effects. They're drinking alcohol. They don't know what's in it. They're buying it. They're making it themselves. Um, and Wheeler tells the press after a rash of deaths in, in I believe, it was Chicago or New York, he says, the government is under no obligation to furnish the people with alcohol that is drinkable. The person who drinks it is a deliberate suicide. Um, what role do you know of, and, and there's, there's differing reports, that Wheeler or the Anti-Saloon League played in, in this idea of, um, you know, in some of these deaths that we had from drinking, basically, you know, bathtub gin? Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial issue. Um, and Wheeler, I don't think, represented... Everyone in the league, um, with his statement about suicide, he was kind of out there in a way. Uh, you take people like Ernest Charrington, who is the editor-in-chief of the publications here. He took a much um, more, I, I'll use the word rational, calm view about this. Uh, Wayne Wheeler was really into retribution uh, and punishment for lawbreakers, the um, the extreme method of actually poisoning the substance you knew was going to be used by people to make homebrew is very radical, but the government was persuaded to do this. And um, it's, I think, New Year's Day, 1927 in New York City, when suddenly people are showing up in the hospitals and there are a rash of deaths. And in the year after 
um, the government decides to pursue this policy. The denaturing of, of industrial you know, alcohol is how they would have termed it. Right. Once they decide to in, uh, really add a chemical brew to um, the alcohol that was being produced for industrial purposes, not for drinking purposes, you see this rash of deaths, and it is all over the country. It's not just in the urban areas. Um, it's been written about in several books. Um, Deborah Bloom in The Poisoner's Handbook writes about it. Uh, it it's a major problem, and I think for a group that was very moral, uh, for them not to recognize how horrible this was, that they were killing people who were, um, yes, breaking the law, but um, imbibing in something that was um, being produced widely across the country. It is rather, it's rather a sad thing. And I do think that this is coming almost toward the end of Wayne Wheeler's life. And I often wonder if he wasn't getting more and more frenetic about this because I think he saw the forces gathering against the League. By the time you get to the mid-1920s, some of their major supporters are pulling away from them because they see that organized crime has come in uh, to move alcohol around the country and sell it. So you have a crime problem you have a, a law that's just not working. You have so many lawbreakers that you have to question the law. And some of their main supporters have started stepping away from them. And I think Wayne Wheeler at this time was getting rather desperate. It's 1927, and Wheeler's power on Capitol Hill has waned considerably. The Anti-Saloon League is no longer the dominant force. The law isn't working, and half the country or more than half the country has turned completely against it and its candidates. Wheeler has an embarrassing series of, of, of hearings on Capitol Hill with Senator Reed of Missouri out for all the problems that the law has caused. He then has a very embarrassing debate where he's laughed off the stage at Madison Square Garden. We talk with Beth about those final days of Wayne Wheeler, those days of 1927, when everything in his life falls apart. And I think Wayne Wheeler at this time was getting rather desperate. Uh, some of his power was eroding. People in Congress, he was being called to Congress to um, testify. There was a debate he did where he was the kind of the butt of the joke. And at all, all this is going on. His health is failing. He had been a workaholic from the time he left Oberlin. He had given his all for the league. A locomotive in trousers, I think is what somebody called him. Yes. One of his, I don't know if that was a supporter or, <laughs> or, or not, uh, but yes, he, he had really run himself into the ground. And um, I think when we get to this point, this is an act of desperation to poison uh, industrial alcohol that that you know people are going to use to make drinking alcohol. Uh, and 
I've I've not been able to prove how heavily the league lobbied for this, um, but given Wayne Wheeler's statement about suicide, you have to think that he at least played a role in the government's decision to do that. And I think you make a great point. Wheeler is, he goes to Madison Square Garden for that debate, and he is the butt of the jokes. And he's basically catcalled and booed off the stage. Um, he has, you know, I think it's Senator Reid, um, who gives him a really hard time in, in Congress. And, and he is stressed out, and he has heart issues and other things. And he dies rather suddenly um, in in 1927 at at the age of 57 and Wayne Wheeler's death you know you read some of the obituaries and they are they are really impressive um the Cincinnati Inquirer you know says Wheeler made great men his puppets um do you agree with people who say that Wayne Wheeler for his time from whether we say you know 1913 to 1927 was the most powerful man in Washington um I argue he was because he worked for both sides and for many years, you could not get elected or stay in, in Congress without his help. Well, he, he went so far as to have people sit in the gallery of Congress on a daily basis who would report back to him if any senator or congressman got up and mentioned alcohol in any way, shape, or form. And Wayne Wheeler's office was right there, and he was on it right then to to question them what are you talking about what are you thinking this man was totally dedicated to the cause and i do think he was incredibly powerful and i think he does not get recognized for the fact that the kind of politics he practiced um are very much in use today He's not a household name, but what he did is certainly what goes on today in terms of holding um, some elected officials' feet to the fire on single causes and their votes on single causes, and also really some uh, elected officials are owned by certain organizations, um, not necessarily businesses, but um, can be uh, good cause lobbies like um, like the league. One author called the Anti-Saloon League the most ruthless good cause lobby in the history of the country. Wheeler's health starts failing him. And in 1927, at the end of the summer, he removes himself from Capitol Hill and from Columbus, and he goes to his summer home in Michigan. And there's a kitchen accident, and his wife is burnt to death, and her father comes down, and he witnesses the burning, and he has a heart attack, a heart attack and he dies. And two weeks later, Wayne Wheeler, crushed by emotion, stressed by the Anti-Saloon League's failures, has a heart attack of his own, and he dies at age 57. After Wheeler's death, the Anti-Saloon League basically can no longer hold down the fort. The country falls into a depression, and many decide that maybe, by just like as we thought the taxation of marijuana in the modern age could help pull us out of a, a recession, that maybe reinstituting booze into our lives, the formerly the fifth largest industry in the country, can help revive the economy. Not to mention the Al Capones and everyone else. It's not working. Everyone's still drinking. People seem to be drinking more than ever. So the country in 1932 elects FDR. And by 1933, 
people are, again, drinking beer across the country. Of course I am delighted, but not surprised by the final repeal of the 18th Amendment. I felt all along that when this matter was properly submitted to the rank and file of our people, they would readily see that it had no place in our Constitution. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, to estimate the benefit that will come to this country from the lesson taught to the coming generations to make it their business to see that no such matter as this is ever again made the subject of federal constitutional law. The decisive vote of the 36th state against prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land. With an eye on December 5th, work is being rushed in distilleries and bottling works. Thousands are being called back to work in plants of allied industries. At least 500,000 new jobs are predicted as a result of repeal. From keg and barrel factories, perhaps the most closely allied line, immediate benefits from repeal extend into almost every line of business and commerce. However, everyone's not waiting until December 15th. The lid is off in many places, with the downfall of prohibition being celebrated in real old-time hilarity. Yes, and by the renewal of old acquaintances. Hotels and nightclubs report a real pre-war spirit among those revelers. Boy! Uh-oh! There'll be no more scenes such as this. Barrel after barrel of prize whiskeys destroyed by government agents. It's going to be a cold winter for the barrel busters. That's going to do it for today. We want to thank our guest, Beth Weinhardt of the Anti-Saloon League Museum. Go check her out. They've got all kinds of stuff you can see over there in Westerville. It's at the. Uh, it's on State Street. It's attached to the public library. Um, and Beth was awesome. We look forward to, to having her on in future episodes. And let's get to this week's book recommendation. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading This episode's book recommendation is Last Call by Daniel Okrent. Uh It's the rise and fall of Prohibition uh, Daniel Okrent's an amazing author It's actually the book that Ken Burns based his Prohibition PBS special on a few years back. A few people know Daniel Okrent uh, and some of his friends actually invented fantasy baseball. Uh, they invented fantasy sports back in the early 1980s. So go pick up Last Call. It's a great read. It's going to do it for this episode of Ohio vs. the World. Don't forget to rate and review us on Stitcher and Spotify and iTunes. Check out our website at Ohio 
vtheworldpodcast.com. Look us up on Facebook, Ohio V the World, Ohio V the World Podcast on Instagram. And just be sure to share these episodes. Let your friends know about it. And reach out to us on, on Facebook or on the website and let us know what you want to hear us talk about. If you have anyone that you think we should interview, any topics we should get into. Join us for episode four. We talk about Ohio versus the British Empire. We'll look at the Battle of Lake Erie in September 1813 and how the United States helped to win the War of 1812. Also, again, check out our guest spot we did on Whiskey Business, a podcast hosted by Dino Tripodis, whiskeybusinessshow.com, or on iTunes and Stitcher. So that'll do it for this week. We'll check you next week. Um, and thanks a lot for listening. So Ohio be the world. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.